This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Well, Easter is about resurrection, and so we're going to look at one of the great chapters in the Bible that talks about the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection one day. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15, we're talking today about the greatest miracle which occurs really in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look, be looking at various scriptures from that great chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version this morning, the NIV. I, I like that particular translation for this particular uh, text. And as we walk through the message this morning, uh, most of the, the scriptures will be on the screen for your convenience. 1 Corinthians 15, and let's begin with verse 1 and read through verse 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, if you'll skip down to verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then if we'll look at, toward the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 50, verses 50 and following. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible chapter in your word. We thank you for the incredible truths about resurrection here and, and, and about Christianity. Help us to see afresh and, and anew what our faith is grounded in. Help us to see how the resurrection of Christ connects to our own lives today. Open our eyes to see these things by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones was perhaps the greatest preacher of the, the 20th century. And he once said this, when God acts, he can do more in a minute than man with his organizing can do in 50 years. So true. How often do we have a, a problem or a challenge in life and we, we toss and turn about it at night. We, we run around all day trying to, to, to fix it on our own, to solve it on our own, when what we really need is to get on our knees and give it to God. <laughs> because when God gets involved, the problem is solved, and he doesn't even need a minute in order to do it. He doesn't even need a full second. In fact, the greatest miracle, resurrection, took place in just the twinkling of an eye. How long does it take us to, to, to blink our eyes? It takes less than half a second. We do it 15 to 20 times every single minute. The greatest miracle takes place in less than half a second. That's resurrection. Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of his people one day. That's what this chapter is all about. So, what core truths do we see in 1 Corinthians 15 about Christianity? Let's go to the heart of our faith this Easter Sunday. The first truth that we see in this chapter is this. Christianity is grounded in real events. Christianity is grounded in real events. We see that in verses 1 through 8. Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is not good advice about how to live. Christianity is not even about making bad people good. Christianity is about making dead people alive. It's ultimately about resurrection. It's about good news. Let's look together at, at verse 1 of this chapter. Now, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So that word gospel in verse 1 literally means good news. Could you stand some good news? <laughs> We've been seeing a lot of bad news in our world recently. But the Bible talks about some good news that ultimately is going to triumph over all the bad news that we see in the world, all the bad news that we experience sometimes in our own lives. What is that gospel? What is that good news? 
Let's look at verses three and four. The Apostle Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Scholars believe that verses three and four were actually part of an early Christian creed. It was a creed that the early believers committed to memory and they would say it together in worship because it helped get the core truths of the gospel deep within their hearts. And there, there are two core truths here that we see in verses three and four about the gospel. First of all, it's about substitution. And we see that in verse three. He says that Christ died for our sins. In other words, he, Christ died in our place instead of us on our behalf. The one who had no sin on the cross became sin for us. The one who had no sin debt to pay on the cross paid our sin debt, paid it in full. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and it's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Substitution. The second principle that, that we see here in verses 3 and 4 is, is resurrection. And we see that in verse 4. It says that Christ was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Now notice how concrete the language is here when Paul talks about the resurrection in verse 4. He says, first of all, that, that Christ was, was, was buried. Why does, why does the Apostle Paul kind of go out of his way here to, to mention that, that he was buried? It's because he wants to emphasize that this was an actual corpse in a tomb. Like he really died. This is a, a real corpse in a tomb. And then he says that he was raised on the third day. Again, why does he kind of go out of his way to say that it happened on the third day? It's because he wants to emphasize that this is a real event that's taking place on a real day in real space and time. When the Bible talks about the resurrection of Christ, it is not talking about something murky or fuzzy or nebulous. When the Bible talks about the resurrection of Christ, it is not talking about a, like a spiritual event, like Christ was sort of, you know, raised spiritually so that he lived on in the hearts of his followers. No. When the Bible talks about the resurrection, it, it's you talking about a real, actual event. He was really dead, buried in a tomb, raised on an actual day. Christianity is grounded in real events. And the eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses to these events knew that very well. So in verses five through eight, the Apostle Paul gives us a whole list of eyewitnesses, of people who saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And this is not even an exhaustive list. For instance, the women who were at the tomb, who were the first eyewitnesses of his resurrection, are not even mentioned in this, in this list. 
But see, these people, these eyewitnesses, spent the rest of their lives going around the world and proclaiming that Jesus was alive. And they were persecuted for that. Persecuted brutally for that. Many of them were martyred for that. They were killed because they refused to stop testifying that Jesus was alive. Would they do that for something that was a lie? No. They knew this was real. Christianity is grounded in real events. Second, Christianity stands or falls on these real events. Christianity stands or falls on these real events. And we see that in verses 12 through 19. Let's look first of all at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So what's going on here? What was happening in in Corinth? So 1 Corinthians, this letter, is written to a church in first century Corinth But in this church, there was some confusion. And the confusion happened because there was a false teaching that was going around. And the false teaching, scholars believe, piecing it together, was was basically this. The false teaching was that, well, okay, Christ was raised, but his people are not going to be raised because the body is bad. Bodies are, are bad, so we don't want any part of, you know, of bodies being raised. Now, Paul's answer to that is that this rips the heart out of our ultimate hope as believers. He says in verses 13 and 14, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless And so is your faith. I mean, we might as well go home. We're wasting our time, wasting our lives. Verses 16 through 18. He says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. All of those, those loved ones who have passed on, who died in Christ, all of, all of your saved loved ones, family and friends who died knowing the Lord and you thought that they were with the Lord, you're just kidding yourself. They're just lost, perished if Christ was not raised. But, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that brings us to the third truth that we see in this chapter. And that is that Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of his people. Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of his people. Let's look at verse 20 once again. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first thing that Paul is doing here in verse 20 is he's emphasizing once again 
that the resurrection of Christ is a real event. Christ has indeed been raised. This is a real, actual event. But then in the latter half of verse 20, he's transitioning to how this event connects to us. It connects in this way. His resurrection was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the term first fruits was a harvest term. The first fruits were the first part of the harvest to come in, and the first fruits were the guarantee that the remainder of the harvest was coming. And Paul is saying that the resurrection of Christ functions just like that. It's the first, right? It's the first fruits. But his resurrection is not the last resurrection. It's the first fruits. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that his people, that followers of Christ, that those who know him as Savior and Lord are also going to be raised one day. He says in verse 20 that, that his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 18, he makes it clear that he's talking about those who were asleep in Christ. That those who died in, in Christ, knowing Christ. And so this promise is not a promise for everyone. It's not a promise for the general population. It's, it's a promise for those who, who die in Christ, who die knowing, knowing Christ as Savior and Lord, which brings us to a very relevant question. Are you in Christ? Are you certain that you are in Christ? Because if you're not certain about that, you need to get absolutely certain about that because it's the difference between heaven and hell. And you can be certain about that. How, do, how can you be certain? Let's go back to that gospel that we talked about. That good news that, that the Bible talks about in, in, in verses three and four. It says there that Christ died for our sins. We're all sinners. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. Not a single one of us deserves heaven. Not a single one of us can earn our way to heaven. Christ died for our sins. He took our place on the cross. Salvation is offered to us now as a gift. How do we, how do we receive that gift? Through repentance and faith. By turning and trusting. By, by turning from trying to do life our own way apart from God and turning to Christ, who is the only Savior, and trusting in him, simply trusting in him. Trusting that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised from the dead so that we can have eternal life. We can be certain that we know him. Let's... let's Go back at, at, this, at this point 
to that, uh, to that term sleep. He says in verse 20 that, that Christ is raised as, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the term sleep here is a euphemism for death. Paul uses the term sleep kind of, kind of the way that in our, our culture today we use the term passed away. It's just kind of a gentle way of saying that someone has, has died. That's the way that he uses the term sleep here. It, it just means that someone is resting with, with the Lord. It, it does not mean that they are in an unconscious state like we are when, when we're literally asleep. It doesn't mean that at all. Believers who have passed away, believers who, are, who sleep in Christ are, are not in an unconscious state. They are very conscious. They are more alive than ever. They are aware that they are in the presence of the Lord in, in, in heaven. They are, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 6, they are absent from the body and present with the Lord. Away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Christians who have, who have died are in heaven, they're fully conscious, they're absent from the body and present with the Lord, and for a, a lot of people, they think that's the ultimate hope, go to heaven when I die. But as wonderful as that is, biblically, that is not our ultimate hope as Christians. Our ultimate hope as Christians is not to be absent from the body in heaven, but to have glorified bodies in the new heaven and earth. And that is going to happen when Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 16 and 17 tell us this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Christ comes again, those who have died in Christ are going to be the first ones to rise. They're all, they've been with the Lord. They're absent from the body, present with the Lord. But when Christ comes, they're going to get glorified bodies to go with their souls that have been with the Lord. And then in verse 17, it says, then we who are still alive. In other words, if we're still alive on that day, the day when Christ returns, we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. If we are alive on the day when Christ returns, and he could return any day, then the bodies that we currently have right now are going to be instantly transformed. In the blink of an eye, the bodies we have now are going to be transformed into new, glorified, imperishable bodies. Now, 1 Thessalonians was written a few years before 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul expands on what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. He expands on it even more in verses 50 and following. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood 
cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, at first glance, Paul seems to be saying what the false teachers in Corinth were, were saying, that, you know, hey, flesh, flesh and blood the, uh, is not for the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood are bad, but that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying here is that our bodies in their present condition, their present perishable condition, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not fit for the kingdom of God. You know why? Because the bodies that we have right now, the perishable bodies that we have right now, are subject to things like sin and disease and aging and death. The bodies that we're going to get when Christ returns are not going to be subject to any of those things. No sin, no disease, no aging, no death, all of those things gone. We're going to get imperishable bodies that are going to be fit for the, the kingdom of, of, of God. We're going to be changed, transformed. Verses 51 and, and, and 52. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Changed. He says it in verses 51 and 52, changed in just the, the, the blink of an eye. So, what will our glorified bodies be like? What's that going to be like? The Bible says they're going to be like the body of Christ when he rose from the dead. They're going to be physical and yet transformed, imperishable. They're, they're going to be like the body that Jesus walked out of that tomb with. 1 John 3, 2 says that, that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 puts it this way, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Look at verses 53 and, and 54. He says, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Now that last expression, death has been swallowed up in victory, comes from Isaiah 25. Look at Isaiah 25 and, and verse 7. The Bible says there, on this mountain, he will swallow up, God will swallow up the burial shroud. The shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. In, in other words, the, the world right now 
is, is under this shroud, this, this, this pall of, of death. And, and most of us have experienced the grief of that in our lives. We've had loved ones to pass away, friends and, and family. And we've experienced the pain and the grief of that. Right now, there's, there's this shroud, the shroud of death is, is always hovering. It's always around. It's saying that one day God is going to swallow up that shroud forever. It's going to be gone. Isaiah 25, 8 says this, when he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. Praise God. John echoes this in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 and verses 4 and 5. It's talking about the new heaven and earth when Christ returns. And it says that on that day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. A whole new world in which everything wrong in this world is going to be made right. Everything broken in this world is going to be made whole. Everything sad in this world is going to come untrue. The great Christian writer J.R.R. Tolkien pictures this in a scene in Lord of the Rings. It's in the third volume of Lord of the Rings, appropriately titled The Return of the King. Sam Ganji says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music. That's the music of resurrection. That's the music of new creation. Look at verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So I'm a sports fan. I'm a football fan. And in the NFL and in college football, there's a rule against taunting. You can't get in the face of your opponent and mock them and taunt them. But God here in verse 55 is taunting. (laughs) He is taunting death itself. See, God has the last word in history. And, and what verse 55 is it, it is, it is, it is mocking death. It is taunting death. <clears throat> and there is no penalty. The great New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says this, death's victory has been overcome by Christ's victory. And death's deadly sting has been detoxicated. Indeed, the stinger itself has been plucked through Christ's resurrection. Praise God for a risen Savior. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you today on this Easter Sunday for raising your son from the dead by the power of your spirit. We thank you that it changes everything. Everything. That it can change everything about the way that we approach this life. That it can change everything about the way that we approach death and think about death because death has been conquered. It does not have the last word. We thank you for the eternal life that we can have in, in Christ. And again, as, as we're reflecting before the Lord, as we just continue to, to reflect in his presence, I would ask you again, do you, do you know that you know Christ? There's no more important question in the universe for, for any of us. You can know because the work has been done the good news is that the, the, everything has been done for our salvation. There's a Savior who took our place on the cross, paid our sin debt, paid it in full, rose from the dead, defeated death so that we can have eternal life. That means that you can be completely forgiven of all of your sins, be made new, have eternal life, and it's all available as a gift that we simply receive. And how do we receive that gift? We turn to Jesus and we trust him. We turn to him. And to turn to Jesus means to turn away from trying to do life apart from him. And we trust him. We trust that his death on the cross was not just sort of a generic death for people, but that, that he died for you. And you rest in that. You rely on that alone. You, you receive Christ as your Savior, Lord, King. It means taking the controls, our hands off the controls of our lives and giving our lives to, to Christ. He invites you to do that today. You can do it right now, right where you're seated. Lord, we thank you for the new life, the eternal life that is available in, in Christ. Father, I, I pray that you would make this Easter Sunday a day of new life for some people who are here in this room, maybe some people who are watching this video, Lord, may this be a day of new beginnings, of new life, made possible through the resurrection of Christ. In his name we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. 
and may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.